really grateful for the choir um, staying for both services today and sharing uh, in worship with us. It's great to have them here, be part of the service as well, uh, and to see all of you. If you've been here on a regular basis in the fall, you know we've been um, kind of wrestling with what we've called the God questions, uh, big questions um, that people in the world who are not Christ followers are asking, uh, but also the same kind of questions that you and I ask ourselves, maybe in a different light or for different reasons, but they're all questions with which we wrestle. And, and today we're going to end with a really big question, which is, is there a heaven? And if there is a heaven, what exactly does that mean uh, for our life here now? Those are the two things that we're going to talk about today. Um, some of you may have seen an interview with Ted Koppel recently. He was in uh, West Virginia interviewing a group of people who were living there um, in, a, in a particular town that once had been booming because of the coal industry, but now that the coal industry has been decimated, so has the town. Um, the town's economic climate is horrible. Most of the stores are boarded up. There are very few jobs for people to have. Certainly in the coal industry that is true, but either in other um, phases of life there. And people are leaving the town and leaving the county. And the reason that Ted Koppel had gone there was because year after year, uh, in election after election, uh, this county and this particular town had always voted Democratic. And now, for whatever reason, uh, this election they had changed to vote Republican. And he was there just to ask questions like why and um, wh what's going on and why is that such a change and what's going on in the life of these people. He was curious in that regard. And as they panned uh, the group of people with whom they're going to interview, I couldn't help but notice that there was one woman who was particularly um, significantly younger uh, than the other people in the group. Uh, but also I noticed that she was wound up pretty tight. Um, and that she looked like she was on the verge of tears from the very beginning. And uh, I wasn't sure exactly what was going to come. And then when Ted Koppel asked her the question about what she thought about the election, the first thing she did was to start crying. And she said that um, she never thought her life would be like this right now. She was in her 20s. She has two children. She's a single mom. And she lives from government subsidies. And as she explained her story, you got the sense that she had no hope for anything different ever for the rest of her life. That this was the way it was going to be, that this was her lot in life. I never thought it would be this way. Isn't there something more than this? And that's a question that a lot of people ask, right? Isn't there something more than this? Life is difficult, life is painful. Um, sometimes here we say life is hard, faith is weak. And that's certainly true for all of us. And some people, like this young woman, live very difficult and painful and struggling kinds of lives. And they can't imagine that anything different could come of it. And they can't really wait for it to end and to move into what we might call eternal life. But there's another whole segment of our population, of course, that doesn't even believe in eternal life. You know, this is it for them. And this is it for everybody, they believe. There is no such thing as eternal life. There is no such thing as heaven. Carl Sagan, the scientist, the late scientist and author, probably represents their thinking when he writes, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, and despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. 
And that represents the thinking of a lot of people in the world. Their perspective is that heaven only was made up by human beings to take the sting out of death. And it gives us some kind of hope for the future. But in reality, in their minds, there is no such thing as heaven. The Apostle John has a little bit of a different perspective. In the first uh, letter that it is, uh, bears his name, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, John writes, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. God has given us eternal life, John writes with emphatic declaration. And then later when he writes in the book of Revelation about what things might be like in the end times as he imagines through the power of the Holy Spirit what that might be like, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. John is sharing a completely different perspective than Carl Sagan showed. We believe in life after death. We believe in an eternal life where God reigns and rules completely. Our ability to express thoughts, however, about what this eternal life might be like is limited by our finite minds. It's an infinite concept that God can kind of explain, but it always is tainted by um, our human finite ideas and, and thoughts and feelings. And, and the Bible tries to describe in poetic ways and in metaphorical ways what heaven might be like. And it talks about clouds and it talks about angels and it talks about harps and it talks about golden streets. And, and then we try to, to take these images and make it real and say, this is what heaven is like. And a lot of times the images that we have of heaven are, are somewhat comical, for instance. You know, you know, we got horses with wings riding across the clouds and, and there's a cross up there apparently that's surrounded by clouds. That's not, I'm not even sure where you find that. And, and then there's an open door where you can walk through the door and go into heaven, but it's always, there's always clouds. And then there's these little fluffy, cute angels, which means I have no chance to be in heaven. But, you know, this is the way it is. This is our depiction. This is what we have. This is what we're trying to describe. And even when we try to take a modern interpretation and say, this is what's heaven going to be like, we come up with Morgan Freeman, <laughs> who is God, obviously residing in heaven. And how do I know it's heaven? Because he is on a white suit. And it's a sterile environment, and everything is white around him. So when we try to depict what heaven will be like, what we think heaven will be like, our images are really contained by our finite thinking. Reformed theologian Shirley Guthrie writes that heaven is an eternal life of genuine, complete, free realization of our humanity. In other words, in heaven we become who we were originally made to be as 
human beings. This is what God originally created. This is what God wanted. Sin and disobedience entered into the world, and it went completely off the rails. But in heaven, it's all going to be restored. There'll be a new city, a new Jerusalem. We'll be restored to our original humanity of what God wanted us to be like. He goes on to say that it means rest from all the frustrations and tensions and conflicts and self-contradictions of our present struggle with the God-denying and brother-denying humanity in and around us. This God-denying, brotherly-denying, you know, what, what are the two greatest commandments Jesus said? To love the Lord your God, God-denying, and to love your neighbor as yourself, brotherly-denying. This is the way we live. And in heaven, all of that is gone. And all of it is different. So that in heaven, we are originally who God created us to be. He places us back in a perfect scenario where there is no disobedience and no self-centeredness and none of the consequences of any of that that we suffer from now. Now, did you notice that in the passage I read from Revelation... And in other instances where heaven is spoken of, it's described as a city. You know, sometimes we think of a bucolic countryside where there's green grass and beautiful, I think it's palm trees probably, and a bee. I mean, we think of this idyllic thing, but heaven is described as a city. A city filled with people. A city filled with people who represent every tribe and tongue and nation and we'll all be there together. It's the hustle and bustle of the city. It's not like you can avoid other people because we're created to be in community with one another. And in a city you are created to be in community with one another. And you'll walk up and down the street you'll have the excitement and energy of the city. I love the excitement and the energy of the city. I just don't like what it takes to have to get there. Now there'll probably be no traffic in heaven. Well, I don't know if there will or not. But there'll be a city and if there is traffic, we won't care. But the point is, it'll be like a city. Great diversity, great energy, and everything that God wanted us to have from the very beginning of time will be there in that city. And then he goes on to write, I, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No sanctuaries, no churches, no worship centers. Why? Because God and Jesus are always present and worship is always going on in some way, shape, or form. It broadens the idea of what worship might be as we're in relationship with God constantly. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God that gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. In heaven, there'll be no pain. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no disease, no difficulty. There'll be no bullying. There'll be no prejudice. There'll be no misogyny. There'll be no racism. There'll be no sexism. There'll be no sex trafficking. There'll be no refugees. There'll be no famine. There'll be no poverty. There'll be no power mongering. There'll be no drug addictions. Why? Because in heaven, Christ is king. Christ is king. And all that is wiped out and gone. We're going to live in perfect harmony and community with one another. Egos will be absent. Psychological and emotional scars will be null and void. Personality quirks might exist, but they won't get in the way of relationships. We'll all get along even though we don't like each other's personality because we won't care. 
Heaven is not a place of escape, but a place of complete fulfillment. Because heaven is the place where Christ is king. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds great to me. I mean, I can't wait. But the question that it poses for us is this question. What do we do in the meantime? What about the meantime? Are we just supposed to wait and endure and suffer and hold on? Is this all there is, as a young woman would think? Is this all there is? And then when it's over, finally I get some relief? Well, there's this phrase that Jesus uses in the model prayer that he taught us that we oftentimes just kind of recite but don't really think too much about. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. What exactly does that mean? I mean, I could answer that question for you, but, but let's let the Heidelberg Catechism, this ancient document that helps us understand what we believe and why we believe it, answer it for us. There's two questions, 123 and 124. I'm, I'm sure all you knew that. Um, that, that address this issue of what does it mean. And so I think that I'll read the question and let's together read the answer, okay? What does the second petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve your church and make it grow. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. And then another question. Well, what does the third petition of this Lord's Prayer mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any back talk. Your will alone is good. Help us one and all to carry out the work that we are called to as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. In other words, let's celebrate here on earth that we are not king or queen, but that Christ is king. Eternal life heaven isn't something that we have to wait to experience but we get a little taste of heaven here on earth eternal life is something that you and i experience and bring into the world with our own presence we talk about shining light and living water that is heaven on earth let me remind you again of what john wrote in chapter five this is the testimony god has given us eternal life and this life eternal is in his son Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now and forever. Now and forever. Eternal life is something that happens now and forever. This is a consistent theme that John writes about and many of the things that he wrote in the Scriptures. Probably my favorite, and I guess people call it your life verse. What's your life verse? Well, mine is, I have come that they may have life and have it to its full. Jesus came that you and I might know everything that he wants us to have and be because Christ is the king. 
We live our eternal life now and then into the future. We live eternal life when we embrace Jesus and his way of living. And then our lives have meaning and purpose, which is what we all crave. If we align with Jesus, that's where we find it, not in anything or in any way else. Heaven on earth happens when people who are around us who are in need receive time and talent and finances from us to assist them. It's when we bring out of our prosperity and our bounty food that goes from this place to a food pantry that's distributed to people who live in poverty. That's heaven on earth. It's when we as a congregation can help people that we don't even know and will never visit recover from Hurricane Matthew. It's when people from this place serve in the community in so many ways, shapes, and forms. Heaven and earth happens when we walk together in discipleship, learning what it means to become more like Jesus. It's what I heard one of our elders talk about on Monday night when we talked about the things that we were thankful for in the life and ministry of this congregation. One of our elders said, for me, in his life, it's our men's ministry, which has taught him how to be a better man and a better father and a better husband. And he needed that, even though he's grown up in the church, his entire life. That's heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is what happens when people get together and share their experiences of grief and suffering and walk away with some degree of healing because Christ is king. Heaven on earth is what is happening with our children downstairs right now. We're up here, we're celebrating, we're worshiping Christ as King. But there's a whole group of children with more energy than you and I could ever imagine or contain downstairs worshiping Jesus as Christ as King. And they're the models. Faith like a child. For those of us who are adults, heaven on earth is what happens when broken relationships are healed and when people who are on opposite ends of a pole are reconciled. Heaven on earth is what happens when we can set aside our own personal preferences, the things that we like and dislike about anything in life, including the life of the church for the good of a greater community because we live and believe that Christ is king. Heaven and earth is what it's like when giving is much more important than receiving. Heaven on earth is a hug or a sympathetic tear or an understanding nod or a warm smile. When the Apostle Paul writes about heaven on earth in his first letter to the church at Corinth he says therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because we're serving Christ who is the king When we celebrate Christ the King Sunday in the life of the church, we're encouraged to celebrate the feast of Christ the King. And so it's not by coincidence, but by design, that we're about to celebrate the great feast, the Lord's Supper, which is one of the ways in some mysterious movement of the Holy Spirit that God strengthens us and nourishes us and opens our eyes wide to acknowledge him as the king and to bring heaven to earth. And so with that in mind, let us pray.
God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We, we thank you for your love, which is manifested in the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, who not only was incarnate as one of us, God and man at the same time, but who loved us enough to sacrifice his own life. Feed us now, O Lord, so that your heaven can come to earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.